right, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, I'm going to start us off this episode just by reading a passage from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, if you have been uh, listening to this podcast, we've been in the middle of a series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, And the reason I wanted to start with this passage is just because it, it shows us a bit of God's purposes um, in history. And part of that is that God would send our Savior Jesus Christ, that he would give himself for us for the purpose of redeeming a people for his own possession. And a pe- that is a people that he would redeem from lawlessness and that he would purify for himself and that he would make to be zealous for good works. So that is that is what the work of Christ is is doing in and through us. Um, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is what the redeeming work of Christ is accomplishing. Not just our for- the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of his cross, but also uh, training us to live godly lives and redeeming us from our own lawlessness to make us a people for his own possession. Amen, brother. Amen. So, uh, if you've been with us again, we are in the middle of this series on the doctrines of grace, uh, famously known as the five points of Calvinism, designated by the acronym TULIP. And so far, we have discussed already total depravity, which is the T. Uh, Just a quick recap of that. Uh, Total depravity basically meaning that all of us are born with a sinful nature. Um, Ever since the the fall of of Adam and Eve, the original, uh, the first sin, um, that is passed down to us, and, and the result of that is that we, uh, we are affected in our entire being by sin, that we are enslaved to sin, as the Bible says very clearly, and that we are unable by our own, uh, by our own will, by our own power, to free ourselves from that enslavement to sin. And, it, and what it takes is actually God's saving and efficacious grace to us and a work of the Holy Spirit to redeem us from that. And the... The second uh, letter in the acronym is U, which stands for unconditional election. And we just did two episodes on that. If you guys haven't listened to those, I'd encourage you to go back and do so. But the idea there being that God, the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, have have had a plan for the redemption of a people that was set forth from all eternity, meaning that it was you know, the, the Bible uses the words before the foundation of the world. God decreed um, to save a people. Uh, and, and that people is made up of individuals that God decreed to save. Uh, and he decided that by his sovereign choice and for the praise of his glorious grace. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that he would bring about completely, perfectly, and ultimately their final and full salvation. And the idea that this that this election is is unconditional means that when God did this 
or, or when he decreed this election, that it wasn't based on some foreseen uh, knowledge of God. God didn't look down the quarters of time and, and see that a certain person would have faith or, or see that a certain person was smart or holy or mm-hmm. uh, extra trusting, uh, but that God did it unconditionally. It was just by his sovereign grace. And because of that, uh, we know that if we are Christians, that all of the glory belongs to God for our salvation, mm-hmm. um, all of it, and that our salvation was not just about us saying a prayer or uh, about us making a decision, but ultimately it was about the grace of God that has been given to us before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to L, yep. which is limited atonement. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, one, one quick thought as we are about to enter this discussion is just... So good intro, by the way. Um, if you haven't listened to those podcasts, definitely go back. Um, but as we're getting into this discussion of limited atonement, what we're really trying to answer is 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary, what exactly happened? What happened when Jesus went to the cross? Um, what hap- what's the implications on us? Particularly, what happened at the cross? That's the question we hope to answer today. And limited atonement gives us a glimpse into that answer. Yep. Now, you know, throughout, <clears throat> throughout, throughout time, you know, the, the doctrine has been named limited atonement mm-hmm. and that makes it pretty easy for the acronym to remember. Um, but a lot of people kind mm-hmm. of, you know, it's not maybe the best name for it. Uh, instead <clears throat> a, a better name is probably definite atonement. Um, because what we are going to be arguing is that, uh, the atoning work of Christ, you know, the, the work of Christ on the cross paying for sin, we are going to argue, um, that, that was a work uh, that was for the salvation of the elect mm-hmm. and the salvation of the elect only. Now, it just in, in popular street theology in the American church, uh, in, a, in a lot of places. Yep. What street theology? <laughs> just your basic 101 um, street level theology would, would uh, basically hold the idea that, well, of course, Christ died for all people. Okay. Now we're gonna we're gonna get into this. There's a lot of questions that are wrapped up in that, but yeah, we can change it to two dip. I don't. What do you mean? Definite atonement. Oh, two, two dip. dip. <laughs> yeah, two dip. I don't know if that quite holds as well. Doesn't roll off the tongue no. quite as well. Um, but yeah, so essentially, what we're gonna get into is we're gonna get into what happened at the cross, and yep. I think before we uh, even even go into that, I think what we want to do is just is really is really understand the basic points of the atonement, the things that we need to be sure that we know about what happened on the cross. Um, and, and I think the first thing we need to understand is when it comes to the cross of Christ, one, this is the, like, this is the pivotal moment in redemptive history. Uh, this is like the great saving act of God. You know, really everything in, in the Bible before the cross is kind of building to this great moment on Calvary when Christ would die to accomplish the salvation of his people Mm -hmm. and everything that comes after that, even in the Christian church today, like as, as history is being worked out by the providence of God, everything that comes after that moment at the cross has been affected by the cross. Mm -hmm. And, And as a church, like we are to be built on this doctrine of the cross so much so that Paul in first Corinthians one, he can say to the Corinthian church, that when he was with them, he was determined to know nothing among them except 
for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. So when Paul was going around uh, spreading this um, message about Christ and about Christianity, the, the main point, Paul can summarize his teaching by saying that I, in 1 Corinthians 1, that I was determined to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. That is the central point. That is the great news of the gospel. That is what the Christian church is built on. And that is what the Christian church needs to be about. Yeah, which, this is, is, which is a radical thought that 2,000 years ago, our whole faith and, and, and everything we believe is based upon an event that happened 2,000 years ago uh, to Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and I think nowadays, it's kind of a sidetrack, but we dilute the cross just because, it, at least in America, it's like common nomenclature. Oh, Jesus died for your sins. Like most anyone on the street, like could tell you, like what did Jesus do, and they would be able to say that. Um, but hopefully, in this episode, and as we go through limited atonement, we recover just the beauty and how magnificent and grand the cross of Christ is. Mm-hmm. Everything before it pointing to it, everything after pointing back to it. Um, it is the pivotal point in history. Sorry, I broke in there, but no, no worries. And it, and it's this preaching of the cross. Paul says like it. Paul says that it is the word or the message of the cross that God uses to save those who believe. Yeah. So we need to understand what happened. Yeah. yeah. And and we need to be people that are about the cross of Christ. That we are about the gospel. Amen. Let's go. So <clears throat> one one thing to understand first of all, what happened at the cross mm-hmm. is we need to ask the question: Why is the cross necessary? Why is the atonement a necessary thing? Why did Christ die? Um, and the, the answer to that question is really twofold. First of all, um, the Bible says that human sin is universal, meaning that it affects all people. And, it's, and then on the flip side of that, it says that God is a just and a holy God. So now the, the question that we so often struggle with um, especially as 21st century American American people, mm-hmm. is the idea of how could God um, bring judgment against people? That's really the question that we struggle with. That is not the main question in the Bible. The, the main question that's difficult to answer when we have a biblical worldview is actually how can God forgive sin? How can a holy God and a just God who is the judge of all the earth and hates sin and it is, is is so good that you know Habakkuk says he his eyes are too pure even to look upon sin mm-hmm. the great question is how can this god who is so holy so righteous how can this god forgive sin how can this god give eternal reward to a sinful rebellious people which the bible says all of us are Mm-hmm. You think about Romans 3, no one is righteous, not one. Nobody seeks God. Um, all have turned astray and together have gone their own way. That That is what the Bible tells us about humanity, and it tells us that God is absolutely perfect and absolutely just. So that is the great question. And the answer given to that question is the cross of Christ. Yep. So, and, and, that, and that's part of the beauty. We need to understand that the, the justice and the righteousness of God requires um, atonement for sin. Mm-hmm. It requires it. Now, the amazing thing about the gospel, and this is what should just stir our hearts to worship, mm-hmm. is not does, not only, it doesn't stop at the fact that God requires atonement, but God provided an atonement for us. 
It, we didn't have to atone for our own sin. God provided it. And what's really remarkable, even beyond that, is not only did God provide atonement, but in the second person of the divine trinity, God became the atonement. Breach. He became the atonement. The, the eternal son of God took on human flesh, Philippians 2, he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. So that's the glory of the gospel. Um, not, only, not just that God needs atonement um, because of his justice, his righteousness, but that God provided the atonement for us and that in Christ, um, God became the atonement. Now that's a little bit, you know, you know, okay, say God became the atonement. It's a little bit not super precise, but as we understand, Jesus as God uh, taking on a human flesh became the atonement for our sin. Mm-hmm. And we ought to praise God for that for all eternity. And actually we will. If you read Roman, or Revelation mm-hmm. chapter 5, uh, the picture in heaven is of us praising the Lamb who was slain for mm-hmm. all eternity, singing a, a song to Him yeah. um, and bestowing glory and honor and praise to Him for all eternity. So the cross is important. And that's kind of the idea. Now, the next thing to note... One note here is just like... Yeah, go ahead. The Christian faith is upside down compared to the rest of the world. And so, like, when you, when you're going, going off there, by the way, um, talking about atonement, in, in our minds, like, how it works is you commit a crime, you pay the penalty. All throughout history, that's how it's been. Mm-hmm. If you commit murder, you go to jail, maybe even the death penalty. If you steal, you have to pay the fine, go to jail. Um, but the beauty of the gospel is then... You commit the crime, Jackson. Mm-hmm. Christ pays the penalty, and that is the the atonement. And that's it's counterintuitive. It's it's upside down. That's yeah. the beauty of the Christian faith. Is it, it it flips everything upside down. And, and it's hard to understand. It's it's great grace. It's great mercy. Um, I just want to make a clarification too, though. Yeah. It, it's not as as if you know we could just go on sinning if we've been affected by this. As yeah. we read in Titus, the passage I read to open us. Christ redeemed us not just from the penalty of our sin, but from the power of it. Yeah. So he redeemed us from lawlessness. Uh, he redeemed us from, um, uh, he, he purified us and he made us zealous for good works. So the work of Christ accomplishes more than just uh, our freedom from the penalty of sin. Yeah. But as God, you know, works out our salvation in history, the spirit um, gives us power actually to, overcome the power of our sin in our lives as well and god is god is making a people for his own possession Mm -hmm. purified um in their hearts and zealous for good works so that's important to understand that the other thing i just want to know too and that's kind of wrapped up in this but we really want to make sure it's just hit uh the work of christ the atoning work of christ is a substitutionary work Mm -hmm. or sometimes called a vicarious work meaning that that Christ stands in our place. So when we look at the cross of Christ, we, we are recognizing that this is God's just judgment against not just sin generally, but for our sins specifically. And I just wanted to go through a couple passages that just really highlight that. Uh, maybe the most famous one or the most clearly taught one is actually in in Isaiah, which was written 730 years before Christ actually came. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, very famous chapter of the Bible. But I just want you to notice the pronouns that are used here when it's talking about Christ and his work. It says, uh, this is Isaiah 53 verse 4. I'll start reading. It says, Surely he 
has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So notice the pronouns there. He bore our grief, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Just notice the the work of Christ in our place. Um, also, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is another just great, short, simple verse explaining the gospel. It says this, it says, for our sake, he made him, this is God the Father, made Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see the exchange that takes place there. God the Father treats God the Son as a sinner like he committed our sin. He made him to be sin for us. And the result of that is that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Yep. So the, the cross takes our sin, puts it on Christ, and it takes the righteousness of God, uh, the, the, the perfect record of Jesus Christ, and it puts it on us. Yeah, we probably talked about this before, but theologians calling it the great exchange. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we've talked about imputation at all, but <clears throat> that's really what this verse is drawing out. Um, imputation is, is the giving uh, of something outside of you. That's probably not a technical term, but do you have mm-hmm. a better definition? Uh, I think Luther used the word alien. Yeah, alien. So what happens at the, the which, cross... Which just means outside of yourself, essentially. Yeah. So what happened at the cross of Christ is our sin was imputed, giving to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to us upon faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and theologians call that the great exchange. Yep. Jackson has a sweet phone analogy, but we're on a podcast, so we it's can't do that. Visual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's more visual. Yeah, it's more visual. It's not mine, by the way. I stole it from a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, Okay. One thing, too, I was just going to, as an aside, um, to get a better understanding of Christ and him crucified, uh, the American gospel, the the first Mm -hmm. one's about Christ alone, but the second one is called Christ crucified. So it's it's the American gospel. It's a a documentary, um, and it's extremely well done. Uh, It is. It's probably like two and a half hours, maybe three, the second one. But well worth the watch. Yeah. So if you're looking at something to understand this better, that would be a great thing to watch yeah yeah and it's called literally the title of it is american gospel christ crucified it's, yep. it's very good yep there's a third one coming out too now yeah there is actually you know i would watch both of them they're, they're both very very helpful yeah um okay back yeah. on track so th- well i just had one more verse to mention too you know galatians 3 kind of gives us a good example of this but it, it talks about the, the curse of the law uh in the old testament god's law uh and it says you know, Paul just uses this clear substitutionary language. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that's that's the point. We we deserved uh, the curse of the law, but Christ became a curse for us, mm-hmm. um, and that's what really happened at the cross. And that that like that that is a brutal and ugly reality, but what a an amazing salvation has been given to us. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just the, the, and this is a quick reminder too, but you know, I, I don't want anyone to think that, um, you know, 
God being so holy and so righteous that it wasn't until the cross of Christ that God could love us, mm. but actually uh, the cross happened because God loved us. Yep. Uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son uh, in order that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It was the love of God and the justice of God working together yep. that brought forth the cross. It, it was the love of God for his people um, which, which which drove Jesus to the cross. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, the atonement is not necessary for God to love us, uh, but it, it, it happened because God already loves us. Yeah. That makes sense. I think something that's kind of floating around in our culture and is actually talked about in the American gospel is like a divine child abuser, like is the picture that they paint out for God and that the only way for God to, or the thing that was driving Jesus to the cross is Jesus was trying to get God, the father to love us, just trying to get God, the father to love us. But what drove Jesus to the cross and what, what the father sent Jesus for was out of his love. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and, and Jesus in his in his human nature is actually <coughs> praying like, Father, if this yeah. if it is possible for this cup to pass from me, let let it be done. Um, but Jesus does submit to the will of the Father and goes to the cross and makes the necessary atonement. Um, but it is out of the love of God that all of this is is brought forth to us. Yeah, and we can't be okay. This is we need to get back to limited atonement, but we can't be pitting against uh, God's characteristics against mm-hmm. one another. Um, I think oftentimes like his justice and his love get pitted against each other. Um, and when actually they work together. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, you know, back, back to limited atonement. Um, when we talk about limited atonement, the question that we're really concerned about is the extent of the atonement. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've kind of highlighted above that the, the purpose of the atonement is to, is to, is to pay for sin. Yep. And that it, it really accomplishes that. Yeah, go read Leviticus. And you yeah, can, yeah, you it, yeah, it is. It, it, it really accomplishes that. Like, like Christ gave an actual sacrificial offering to pay for sin. He mm-hmm. took, in reality, the punishment of sin on himself. Now, the question is the extent of this atonement. Mm-hmm. And it is for whom did Christ die? That's really the question. If, if Christ actually took this paid for sin, the question, the question then is, did he, did he pay for the sins of all of the world of every person mm-hmm. or did he pay for the sins of the elect? Um, so what we are, what we mean by limited atonement is to say that Christ died. His, his atoning work was for the elect only. Now, again, like I said, limited atonement, I don't think is the best way to put that, but definite atonement is a better way. Particular atonement. Particular atonement, yep. So there's a few things that we need to understand when it comes to the atonement. Um, and the first the first thing is this. <clears throat> it's not just the Calvinist um, that limits the atonement, but actually everybody does. Unless you are willing to be a universalist, everyone limits the atonement in some way. And if you're not familiar with what a universalist is, a universalist is someone that says all people, regardless of whether they have faith in Christ, regardless of whether they repent of their sins, all people will be saved. That's what it means to be a universalist. So God will actually bring judgment on nobody. God will not make anyone pay for sin. Um, Now that view is completely outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. 
to hold to that view is to, to actually to deny the clear teaching of the Bible, which says that God will be a just judge, which says that he will bring judgment on all who do not repent, on all who do not have faith in him. So that, that view is really out of bounds, so to speak. So unless <clears throat> you are going to operate from a place of what's been historically considered heresy and is clearly outside the scope of biblical teaching, you have to limit the atonement in some way. So for, for the people who are advocates of unlimited atonement, which would be the flip side, uh -huh. or general redemption, sometimes it's called, um, referring to the people who would hold that Christ died for all people, well, they limit the atonement in another way. And actually, I, I would say that though, though they're trying to, to show God to be more gracious, they're actually showing God to be far less gracious. Because in, in, in that view, it is not the scope of the atonement that's limited, but it is the power of the atonement that's limited. It's the efficacy of the atonement that's limited. So in that view, you're not saying that, um, that the cross of Christ actually purchased the salvation of people certainly, but you're saying that the cross of Christ purchased the salvation of people potentially. Mm. And that's the important thing to understand. We're holding up the cross of Christ as something that saves certainly, mm -hmm. that is effective not just to redeem the people it's meant for, but also to purify their consciences, to redeem them from all lawlessness, and to make them into a people zealous for good works. So, so on the flip side, like I said, if you if you're if you're believing in general redemption, you're saying that the cross doesn't save anyone certainly, but it saves everyone potentially. Mm -hmm. So, in a very real sense, you could have like just just the picture of that is that Christ came and he just did his best and he tried to save everyone, but in reality, he could have saved no one. Because it was just a potential salvation. That's the idea. And and, and you really, there, there's no way really to avoid that. Yeah, that's profound. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> to think about, yeah, if you draw that conclusion, the power of the cross can have, can have no salvific power. Yeah. Um, it, it makes men savable. It doesn't save <clears throat> them, but it makes them savable. Yeah. I don't know if you skipped over this, but like the idea of, so if we say that the, the cross of Christ was unlimited in its atonement, that every single person that ever lived, their sins were put on Christ and, and, and crucified with him. And the wrath of God was um, propitiated, um, satisfied on the cross of Christ. And not everyone is saved. You now have a problem. Mm -hmm. You have a problem. You violate the justice of God. Um, and we, some people call it double jeopardy. But if that is the case, then, and we know that people are going to hell, which Jesus clearly teaches. And if you deny that, you're essentially calling Jesus a liar. So we know people are going to hell. That would mean that not only were their sins punished on the cross, but their sins are being punished on them in eternity in hell. And so now God has punished the same sin two times over. Um, that's it, double jeopardy. That's double jeopardy. And that would be unjust. Mm -hmm. um, you can even think of a court of law. Someone murders or we even we'll, we'll take it down a notch. Someone ste like steals something. They serve their punishment, whatever it is. They pay a fine. They go to jail for a week. And then as soon as they are let out, you immediately punish them again for the same crime. 
Yep. That would be unjust of that judge to do. Yep. And so in the same way, if, if this is the reality, which we're arguing today that it's not, um, you have to somehow reconcile the justice of God to that. And we think you can't. Yeah. And I, th- I just don't think that, that that gives justice to what the Bible, the way the Bible speaks about the atonement. Yeah. I don't think it gives justice to that idea. Yeah. Like the Bible presents the atonement not as something that potentially saves, but as something that actually does. The, the blood of Christ um, applied to any person like renders certain their salvation. Mm. And I, I think of a, there's a couple of verses in Hebrews um, that come to mind. I'm going to turn there really quick. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, right now I'm looking at Hebrews 9:11, and in, in Hebrews, really Hebrews 9 through 10 is like a great exposition of the cross of Christ and what it accomplished. So I'm going to start in verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation. There's a lot of Old Testament Leviticus stuff going on here, if you're wondering. But it says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, like they did in the Old Testament, but by means of his own blood. And this is the important phrase, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the blood of Christ secures an eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's the Old Testament system of sacrifice it's talking about. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And verse 15 and I think this gets into our idea. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So who does this apply to? And, and in verse 15, I think that answers it. Those who are called mm-hmm. by God. And we're going to get into that next week with, with the doctrine of irresistible grace. But the point here being that the work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, secures an eternal redemption for those who are called by God and secures for them that they would receive the promised eternal inheritance, which is uh, fellowship with God in the new heavens and new earth mm-hmm. and complete forgiveness for sin. Now, the other one, um, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but it's like a chapter later, Hebrews 10, verse 14, talking about Christ. It says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does the blood of Christ do? Well, it says by his offering, he has perfected for all time. He has made perfect forever Mm -hmm. those who are being sanctified. So those who are being set apart by God, those who are being um, called out of the world and into fellowship with him. That is the efficacy of the cross of Christ. Do you want to move into more scriptures now or do you want to... Well, yeah. Okay. So we are, I'm time, I'm timing us today. <laughs> yeah. We're at 31 minutes. And oh so, boy. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to hit on this really briefly. So that's the main problem. The problem, the first problem with universal atonement is this idea of double jeopardy. Yep. Um, so the Christ, the cross of Christ is actually paying for sin and it's actually perfecting people. That's the result of it now. So that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is this. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Um, 
And the second problem is that if we deny definite atonement or limited atonement, then we have disharmony in the Trinity. So we've talked a little bit before, and this is maybe a little bit, just, just I'll try to go through this to make, make sense of it. Um, but we've talked before about how our salvation is Trinitarian in nature. So that means that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all working together to accomplish their plan of redemption for their people. And there's not like, you can't have the Son doing something that is outside the will of the Father, and you can't have this, the Son doing outside something outside the will of the Spirit either, but they work together is the, is the idea. And when it comes to um, this question, like we see pretty clearly throughout the Bible, and, and we referenced this in our last episode, that God has elected a people for salvation, and he has done that from all eternity before the foundation of the world. So that is that is God's declared purpose. He, he is going to redeem a people decree. for himself. Yep. And and what, what's clear is that that does not include all people. There are people who are, who are left to their own sin and, and to perish in their own sins and to face God's judgment. Now, if we have Christ being sent into the world by God um, to accomplish his will, and we're going to look at some passages later in John 17 that are going to make this really clear. But if we have Christ offering an atonement for all people universally for their sin, then we have Christ doing something that God the Father and God the Spirit never decreed to happen. And the Bible also speaks of Christ interceding for his people before God. Like, like, uh, like you think of like a lawyer pleading a case. So in this case, you would have Christ pleading before the Father for all people to be saved based on the fact that he has made atonement for all of them. And yet, in this view, we would have God the Father saying no to that and all people not being saved, again, unless you're a universalist. So the, the point being that in that view, there is disharmony in the Trinity, which something theologically, like we understand that's just not, that's just not a reality. Like the Trinity is working together to accomplish a plan of salvation. So God the Father, in the scriptures, it's talked about his electing purposes. Um, it talks about how the Son is sent to accomplish the salvation and the redemption of the God's people. And then it talks about how the Spirit is given the work of applying that salvation to them, uh, of causing them to be born again, um, of yeah, giving giving them the, the the gift of of faith and regeneration, and uh, preserving them until the end. And that's going to be the final point of tulip that we'll get into as well. Mm -hmm. But the main point being, uh, there there cannot be disharmony in the Trinity. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working together to accomplish a perfect, complete, full, final redemption of the elect of God's people. So. That, that's just another another that thing was to consider. Three, four minutes. Good job. All right. There we go. We got it done. So now what we really want to do, and we don't, you know, obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast, I hope you've come away with the idea that um, we are not just interested in like what are our own opinions or, or philosophical ideas, but we want to be people who are about the Bible. Uh, and we want all of our theology to come from the Bible. So... If, if the Bible doesn't teach something, then we don't want to be teaching it. So we believe that the Bible clearly teaches this, and that's why we're talking about it. So now we are going to go to some verses. 
uh, and some passages. But to be clear, before we start, I think of the of the doctrines of grace, mm-hmm. um, this is probably the one that is least clear in the Bible, if that makes sense. Um, like we looked at some passages about election that it's just it's just really really plain, and about total depravity that it's just really plain and obvious. Um, but we do think this is pretty clearly taught, uh, maybe just not as much so as some of the other ones, but we're going to get into it. So one text that, or, or passage, um, that I think of, first of all, is, is John chapter 10. And we've referenced this passage before. Um, here we go. I'm going to start at verse 10 or chapter 10, verse 11. So Jesus is, is is giving this discussion about how he is the good shepherd, uh, his people are the sheep. So in verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay. Um, and then verse 15, or I'm going to start in verse 14. And just listen to this language. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus knows those who are his, okay? So now the question is, who are these sheep Mm -hmm. that Jesus lays his life down for? And later in this same passage, within this same context, in this same discussion, um, he's talking with some, some, some Jews. Here's what it says, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And then here's what's important. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there's a few, like, you can just see the, the whole, basically you can see all of the doctrines of grace in that passage. Yeah. That, that Jesus has a people that are his sheep. They are a people that the Father has given them, that he gives them eternal life. They will never perish. We're going to come back to this when we talk about perseverance of the saints as well. Yeah, and you see the distinction. So you see in, in, in verse, what is it, 15? That he yeah. says he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. And then you see later on in that passage in verse 24, 25, where you're reading that there is a people that are outside the sheep. Mm-hmm. He says, you are not among my sheep. Yeah. So then we know right there, there is a group of people that Christ did not lay down his life for. Yeah, and and if... and. The, the evidence of that is that they don't listen to him and they reject him. Yeah. But he, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I just want to like notice the certainty of his language. Yeah. It is not, they follow me potentially. They follow me. Maybe I know them and they follow me and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. There's not room for like, there's no, there's no wiggle room there. there there's, there's no wiggle room. Christ speaks with certainty about his ability to save a people for himself. He is not a potential savior. He is God mighty to save. Mm. And and when we think about Christ as a savior, like w- we got to understand that. He, he's not just p- 
potentially doing his best to save, but actually he's not able to do it. He, he is a, a, an effective savior. Yeah. And you've drawn on that point a few times now of like potentially saving. Um, do you want to touch on like prevenient grace a little bit? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you don't have, yeah, to, I could, I could just give it a quick, just a quick example or a, a quick explanation of it. Yeah. So, so many people who, uh, deny this doctrine or deny the doctrines of grace. Actually, I think it was really John Wesley. I think he was really the first one yeah. to come up with this idea of prevenient grace, which the idea being like, you know, he, he denied the doctrines of grace. And and yet I still think John Wesley was, well, God used him in mighty ways. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to be clear about that, that, that I think God used John Wesley in mighty, mighty ways in England. And I think he came to America as well. Um, and he was really the founder of the Methodist church, but he disagreed with this. He came up with, um, this idea of prevenient grace. And I'm, I think it was around in some other forms before him probably, but the idea being that God, that the grace of God isn't actually a certain saving grace, but that God gives grace to people, all people enough to enable them by themselves to turn to him and trust him and be saved. And, you know, that's really a denial of, of, well, you know, he claimed to hold to total depravity, but then like this prevenient grace overcame that. Um, but yeah, the, the point being, I don't think, well, the, the picture that paints is that God is trying to save people, but can't do it. Yeah. And at the cross of Christ, the potential redemption of all people was purchased, but, but not particularly. Yeah, so you have not this a certain yeah. actual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's kind that's of the good. idea. Okay, where are you going next? Um, I'm going to go to John 17, yep. And I'm just going to read these passages. I'm going to try to go through them briefly, maybe a couple quick comments. Yep, but 41 minutes. Okay. <laughs> when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So this is right before the cross, um, right before actually Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. And verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So Jesus, again, is authority, not potentially, actually. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So here's the idea of Trinitarian harmony. God the Father has given the Son a people, and the people accomplishes their redemption. They are working together, not working towards separate ends, but working towards the same end. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, again, Jesus isn't concerned here about the entire world and every single person in it. He is concerned about the people that the Father has given him. Mm. That is who he's praying for. Verse 7, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, 
and I am glorified in them. So you can see the Trinity working together here to save a people. Now I'm going to go later in the same passage, verse 20. <clears throat> he says, um, I do not ask for these only, that, that that's being his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that we may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So the point of that just being that God the Father and God the Son are working together for the salvation of a particular people that the Father has, they belong to him, and he has given them to the Son. Yeah, and let's draw this from the mind to the heart now. Think about, <clears throat> so Jesus came and he was he was on a mission to go save his people. And so when Jesus puts his cross on his back and is walking to Calvary, <clears throat> he has his people in mind. So if you are a brother and sister in Christ and have placed your faith in him, as he is walking to the cross, he has you in mind mm -hmm. and knows you by name. And when he is nailed upon that cross and the sins are imputed to him by God, the father, it is your particular sins mm -hmm. that have nailed him to that cross. The sin that I had this morning and in the future and in the past, um, that was on the cross of Christ. And he, he bore them out of his great love for his sheep that is amazing a, yeah it's an that amazing reality it is a very personal not just a general atonement it is a very personal one yeah so like and i want to always keep drawing it back to the heart because it's easy to just make up these it's just all intellectual we have these um, doctrines and, and theologies and systems and stuff but these need to be drawing out worship in our hearts. And if they're not, we're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, when I think about limited atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement, that's where your heart should be drawn is when Jesus was walking to the cross and when he was nailed on the cross, he was thinking about you in particular, mm -hmm. the God of the universe, Jesus, the God man on the cross for you. And for, and for my particular sins. Yeah. 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 It's an amazing reality. And it wasn't, and this is our this is our great hope. Yeah. Like this is what we trust in. Like we to be a Christian really is to cast off all attempts at self-righteousness, to cast off all attempts at um pleasing God on my own and to cling to the cross of Christ yeah. as my only hope. Yeah. And to know that that cross is is that it saves. Yeah. That it really saves. That the the blood of Christ is it, it gets me there it really washed you clean it really did wash White me clean yes yeah so that when god looks at me he my, my sins are really paid for yeah 
And the righteousness of Christ is really in me. Yeah. Not my own righteousness, but his. Yeah. And this this is our hope. That like this is the beauty, beauty of the gospel. Yeah. And if we understand that and know that and we we cling to that, mm-hmm. uh, we should be the most happy people and we should be oh, we should be the most gracious and loving and forgiving and kind people that walk this earth and the most humble. Yeah. as well and and james i appreciate you reminding us that when we think about these things like like these things one um should make us worship and love god yeah and cr- and to worship and love the savior and also they should affect the way that we live we we should be the most humble people and we should be the most grateful people yeah uh, we're gonna get there eventually but assurance as well there is so much assurance rooted in this that Christ paid your particular sins, paid for your particular redemption, has given mm-hmm. you his righteousness, that alien righteousness imputed to you. Your salvation is sure. Yep. You know, I'm thinking of, um, there is a wonderful song uh, that is named, are you, you going to break out in song? I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anybody wants to listen to that. We'd probably lose all of our followers. Um. But a wonderful song that expresses this truth is called Before the Throne of God Above. Mm. And it's an old hymn, but I encourage you to go listen to that song. It is a wonderful song expressing some of these great, great truths um, about the atoning work of Christ. So we did have a few more passages in mind, but I think we've kind of covered what we really wanted to and, and, and tried to show another you know, another passage, and I won't go into it deeply, but uh, Romans chapter eight, mm-hmm. really from verses 30 to 34, um, I think that makes makes pretty clear. Uh, it says that it says that God delivered up Christ for us all. And then the following sentence says that like the, the result of that is who can bring any charge against God's elect? Mm-hmm. It is God who justifies. It is Christ Jesus, the one who died. So, because of the blood of Christ, who can bring any charge against God's people? Who can bring any charge? Um, there, there is no, there is no, there is no accusation that can be brought, and no accusation that can stand against the atoning work of Christ. Mm. And that is a great reality. Yeah, another verse. I'm just going to pluck out quick. Uh, Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and just that last piece there. He, he gave his ransom for many, a particular people. It doesn't say he gave his ransom for everyone of all time. It is for many, a particular people. Yep. And the beautiful truth, as we see in the book of Revelation, um, as pictured before us, is that uncountable multitude mm. before the throne of God that is made up of all tribes, all tongues, and all nations on the earth and we look and we long for that day and um we we strive and and uh long to be among that great multitude of people praising god before his throne so with that we did go over the the time that we were planning on on going which is normal um (laughs) we should expect that at this point but our prayer again is just that uh, this would be really a help, a helpful resource uh, to explain some of these things, just to help 
um, just to help understand some of these really what are harder questions in the Bible. Yeah. Some of these big picture, deep questions to wrestle through them. Uh, we pray that this has been an encouragement to you guys. Um, we pray that really the hope in this is that it would make you curious about the answer of these things. It would make you curious to study your Bible, yeah. uh, to see really what it says, and that the result of that would be great. Well, you know, not just you agreeing with us. That's not the end goal, but that you would love God, uh, that you would love his word, um, and that you would desire to reflect that in the way you live as well. Yeah. Are we planning on doing another episode? Uh, yes, I think we are. So okay. there are some, <clears throat> you know, th- there are some passages that we're going to go through uh, that are kind of, you could you could call them problem passages. Okay. Um, and we don't mean by that that like we don't love these passages or um, whatever, but we're going to go through some passages that people will often point to to try to refute the idea of limited atonement or definite atonement. Okay. Um, so we are going to do another episode on this topic. Um, so please, you know, feel free to, to join us in that as well. Yeah. I think um, I'll leave you, leave it with this as you're wrestling through this um, doctrine, just be reminding yourself and asking that question. What actually happened on the cross of Christ? Mm-hmm. What actually happened on the cross of Christ? Yeah. Okay. So we will leave you guys with that. Um, yeah. We pray that, Uh, This would be a blessing to you and that uh, wherever you are, know that if you're listening to this, we have been praying for you and uh, that you would be blessed by this. Yeah. And Jackson's going to start next episode by breaking out in song (laughs) before the throne of God above. So you're going to want to come back and listen to that. It's going to be sweet. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, We'll see you next time.